I remember waking up around three in the morning and I was cold in my hotel room. And I just thought to myself, how cold people on the street must be and how cold people like Sarah and her volunteers must be getting ready for the next day and, you know, how they were keeping people alive in these terrible conditions. And so the next day I, I called my deputy and I called Dr. Kendall mm -hmm. and I said, we've got to do more. By, by that time, I think uh, Perry had declared a public health emergency and that had certainly you know, caused an increased awareness of the situation, but it didn't come with extraordinary measures uh, to keep people alive. But following that sleepless night in that cold hotel room, I, I said, I'm going to call the health authorities and order them to create overdose prevention sites. Uh, what do you think about that? And my deputy, Steve Brown, Dr. Perry Kendall, our provincial health officer, said, we've got to do everything we can. So, yeah. I said, okay. I called the premier's office, talked to some of her staff, and I said, look, I'm going to do this. Um, and unless I hear from the premier in the next hour, I'm calling the health authorities and, and we're going to do this. Welcome to the Red Zone. Welcome to another episode of the Red Zone Podcast. We're very excited to have a special guest with us today, and we'll be picking his brain looking at the role of public policy and public health measures when it comes to mitigating BC's overdose crisis. Who are we talking about? Dr. Terry Lake, who's the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. But Terry was also an MLA, and he was appointed as Minister of Health and served on several provincial government committees as well as vice chair of the Treasury Board. When Terry was health minister, he was at the forefront of the opiate epidemic. His policy directives around harm reduction strategies, such as the overdose prevention sites, naloxone availability, and expansion of opiate agonist treatments, earned Terry the Canadian Public Health Association's Public Health Care Hero Award in 2017. I'm going to have to ask him about that. Dr. Lake also served as a former mayor and counselor of the city of Kamloops and practiced veterinary medicine throughout BC. Terry has two cats, and I had to include that as part of your bio. Good to see you, Terry. How are you doing? I'm great, Aaron. Uh, it's a real pleasure to catch up with you. Uh, it's been a long time. It certainly has. And thanks again for being on today's episode. Now, to get into things, Terry, you served as BC's health minister from 2013 to 2017. And, you know, a period that really was tumultuous time, specifically when I say that, I mean the onset of BC's opiate epidemic was declared the public health emergency. Let's go back to 2016 and the weeks that led up to you officially calling it a public health emergency. Walk us through the weeks prior to you calling that emergency. and What led you to actually make that declaration? Well, um, if we can wind the clock back a little further, Aaron, in 2014, we were all concerned about an Ebola pandemic if you'll remember. And, uh, you know, we had meetings every day. Dr. Perry Kendall, our medical health, provincial health officer, mm -hmm. we met with health ministers and, and deputy ministers across the country getting ready for Ebola. And it really never happened. But, you know, we were ready for an infectious disease pandemic. So when we got through that, it, it never really materialized. We were all feeling relieved and uh, focusing on other things like the usual things you do as a health minister, you know, surgical wait times, not enough doctors, um, you know, pharmacists are looking to expand their scope of practice, of course, which 
in, in many ways we supported. But then along came about 2015, and we noticed that there was an increase in overdose deaths. The opioid overdose uh, count each year had been historically around 200 to 250. Now, in the 90s, there was, I think, some some heroin uh, that was new that caused the spike in, in overdoses. And... Um, that, you know, that went back to normal. So when we started to see the number of overdose deaths creep up 300, 350, 400 in right. 2015, you know, we, we became quite concerned. And um, so I would ask Dr. Kendall, um, you know, what, what do you think is going on here? And because of my background in, in veterinary medicine and, and in fact, uh, had quite an interest in epidemiology. Okay. You know, I said to him, do you think this is something that will just settle back down again, essentially burn itself out like most epidemics do? Whether they're infectious or non-infectious, there tends to be a steady state that is sort of common, even after the pandemic of, of 1918 with influenza, without a vaccine, you know, it, it, it went back to normal after a while. And so we both agreed that, yes, likely we have to watch this very carefully, but likely you would see a steady state return. Well, that just never happened. And so we saw the overdose deaths each month go up and up and up. And, you know, at that time, we had come off the heels of a fight with the then federal government, which was a conservative government, about safe uh, injection sites, mm -hmm. uh, insight, they, they, and also the use of... Um, Diacetyl morphine or prescription grade heroin for use for those uh, that had tried everything else and, and were simply not able to get off their heroin use. And we had a quite a you know a public battle with them, and the Supreme Court ruled on our side, so we were able to continue with that program. So we looked at you know well what else can we do? And obviously naloxone use was one of them. Started thinking about the ways we could make naloxone more readily available to people that were dealing with people on the street, to pharmacists, you know, and worked with the federal government, which was now a liberal government, about changes to the prescription of naloxone to make it more readily available. We also, of course, had, had uh, in recent uh, times, had set up the BC Center for Substance Use. And when was that set up? What year was that? Oh, boy, that must have been around 2015. 15, I'm guessing, uh, <laughs> when time plays tricks on you, but it was around 2015. So we had started uh, the BC Center for Substance Use and had the largest cohort of addiction specialists in terms of being able to teach addiction medicine in North America. So we really thought we were being very progressive, that you know the measures we were putting in place would help curb this worrisome trend in the overdose deaths. We started talking about awareness campaigns, mm -hmm. um, working with the uh, College of Physicians and Surgeons, the College of Pharmacists, about who could uh, prescribe what, about how naloxone could get out more readily. It didn't seem that anything we did made a difference, and people were dying more and more each month. And to the point where we saw that people like Sarah Blythe were setting up their own overdose prevention sites uh, on the downtown east side. And she was basically doing in her own way what we were doing in Insight and had done for the past 10 years. So I thought, well, it would be good to go visit Sarah and see what she's doing. 
and I did. I went down to the downtown east side, saw what she was doing, training people how to uh, monitor for overdoses, how to administer naloxone if there was an overdose. And I thought to myself, wow, this is totally unregulated, but she's keeping people alive. Right. And, you know, our goal always must be to keep people alive. But, you know, not everyone was ready to go that route. And so, again, we were just trying to do these incremental things, hoping that things would start to turn around. And I remember one, it was in November, or I guess of 2014 or 15, I guess 2015. And I was in my hotel room in Victoria because we were in session in the legislature. And I was particularly cold November for the South Coast. And I remember waking up around three in the morning and I was cold in my hotel room. And I just thought to myself, how cold people on the street must be and how cold people like Sarah and her volunteers must be getting ready for the next day and you know how they were keeping people alive in these terrible conditions. And so the next day I, I called my deputy and I called Dr. Kendall mm-hmm. and I said, we've got to do more. By, by that time, I think uh, Perry had declared a public health emergency and that had certainly you know, caused an increased awareness of the situation, but it didn't come with extraordinary measures uh, to keep people alive. But following that sleepless night in that cold hotel room, I, I said, I'm going to call the health authorities and order them to create overdose prevention sites. Um, what do you think about that? And my deputy, Steve Brown, Dr. Perry Kendall, our provincial health officer, said, we've got to do everything we can. So, yeah. I said, okay. I called the premier's office, talked to some of her staff, and I said, look, I'm going to do this. Um, and unless I hear from the premier in the next hour, I'm calling the health authorities and, and we're going to do this. So we'd already set up the conference call by that time. And I thought, okay, I'm just crossing my fingers that Premier Christy Clark would agree this was the right thing to do. And sure enough, you know, before we had the call, I got the thumbs up and the, the, basically the message was do what you need to do. So we called the medical health officers and the key people in the health authorities and said, we need to set up overdose prevention sites throughout the province. And we need to do it just as soon as we can. And MHOs, medical health officers, uh, of course, they understood this was a harm reduction strategy that would help keep people alive. It may not be the total answer, but they were willing to do it. And so just like that, we did it. And I called the prevent, or sorry, the federal health minister, Dr. Jane Philpott. Mm-hmm. And I said, Jane, we're doing this. And I could get in trouble because it really is against the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. Right. And I need you to have my back. And by that time, of course, I'd already engaged with her on this issue a, a few times. And, and she was very supportive. And she said, look, we'll figure it out from our end. You just do what you need to do. So we did. We put in a ministerial order and uh, the overdose prevention sites were sent out. So that was probably the biggest single thing, I think, that in terms of public policy, because public policy usually goes slowly. But in a state of emergency, as we've seen in COVID, you have to make decisions quickly. And so those overdose prevention sites went from essentially one in the province uh, to about, I believe they're about 45 after about 30 days. And thanks for sharing that with us. I mean, like you said, it's a big step in 
getting all hands on deck. And there's really no playbook, I'm assuming. You talked about the Ebola concern and the issues around that. But when it comes to public health emergency, like we're seeing in COVID, and you can speak to this maybe a bit more, but there's no playbook. So the overdose prevention sites were some of the first of their kind, I believe, in North America that were set up. There was other harm reduction measures that were taking that time. And I think that in an emergency type situation, there's a lot of experimenting to some extent. Would you agree with that in terms of from a public health perspective or a policy perspective that trying things and not knowing what the answer is something that is a tool? Absolutely. I mean, there are certain principles, of course, that you have to follow. I mean, you know, people in public health have a huge wealth of knowledge. So there are principles that they can fall back on. Um, but you have to ask yourself, okay, what levers do we have? Yeah. And if we pull this one, will it have the desired effect? And until you pull it, you really don't know. Mm-hmm. And there is the concern that once you pull that lever, it's a one-way street. There's no going back. Uh, so it's not something you do lightly. It's not like you can say, well, we're going to try this. And if it doesn't work after a month, we're going to go back to the way it used to be. Um, so we knew that if we opened overdose prevention sites across the province, mm-hmm. that likely they'd be here to stay uh, at least until something dramatically changed. And of course, we saw them open up across uh, Canada, certainly mm-hmm. in Ontario and, and even in places like Alberta, although some have been closed there, unfortunately. So yeah, you're learning on the fly. You try this and see what happens. You try that, you see what happens because there's no silver bullet. Mm-hmm. I mean, substance use disorder is not like a broken leg. You, you don't take an x-ray, uh, you know, put on a plate, go home and do some rehab. It's something we don't really understand very well. And so to anyone who says that, that this is the answer is fooling themselves because it's much more complex than that. So we have to try things and then add other things and then add more things. And clearly it hasn't been enough. So we'll get to that in a little bit. But you mentioned another interesting aspect of, you know, the few weeks prior to or the few months, a few years <laughs> before declaring a public health emergency here in British Columbia. One thing that stood out was stakeholder engagement. I mean, certainly you're speaking on behalf of the provincial government at that time. And you talked about some of the earlier uh, challenges with working with the federal government with regards to the Insight project, as well as at that time, the federal government being uh, the conservative government. But when you look at the overdose crisis, um, we talk about the roles of municipalities and cities, and we talk about the role of the province, and we talk about the role of the federal government. So how do you align and, and coordinate that stakeholder engagement when not everyone is on board at the same time? due to various reasons, some of it ideologically driven, others due to just lack of knowledge and and awareness. Uh, Three is resistance to change. Human nature, uh, you look at the innovation adoption curve, there's a large segment of folks sometimes looking to see at the early adopters and and what outcome uh, occurs. So how did you stick handle those stakeholder relationships? Well, certainly, you know, on the whole file of mental health and, and substance use, we were talking to many local governments at uh, Union of BC Municipalities conferences. Um, we were talking to the city of Vancouver a lot because of issues around the downtown east side and other places uh, where homelessness, mental health issues, substance use issues are pretty prevalent. The Vancouver police were being very vocal about the amount of time they were spending on these issues. So, you know, we did a lot of talking, but you can get paralysis by analysis sometimes. And we were never going to get to the point where 
everyone would agree on the right path. I mean, quite honestly, when we opened up the overdose prevention sites, there really was no consultation. We didn't go to cities okay. and say, uh, we'd like to do this. What do you think? We knew that it was our responsibility to do something to stem the tide of over overdose deaths. And we thought we would figure out the rest later uh, because we just had to act quickly. What you mentioned about moving quickly is key. Sometimes you may not have the luxury of having the time to connect with multiple parties and, and get each of their consensus right away. But over time, you look at engaging them. So if you, I can say, Aaron, yeah. I think one of the things that I think governments have failed to do since those days was to really consult with local governments because we've seen issues that we're seeing them today where we have homelessness, mental health issues, substance use issues, uh, overdose prevention site issues that are causing some anxiety and negative consequences for businesses, for residents, for local governments. And I don't think we've done enough talking about the way we can achieve our goals and mitigate the adverse effects on uh, residents and businesses. And, you know, I think could do a lot more of that. And I was going to touch on that, but we will discuss a little bit now, like in terms of where, think of where we were in 2015, 2016, compared to where we are now and that trajectory or that evolution of trying different mechanisms of harm reduction and providing access to opiate agonist therapy and creating strategies for supportive environments. Looking at, for example, the role of housing and public housing, what are your thoughts about that in relation to the crisis? And sometimes you have governments talk about mandates where they're uh, looking to provide social housing for every citizen that does really require it. What are your thoughts about that in terms of the role of public housing? Where are we right now? Where do you think we should be going? Well, that's a tough one. Uh, I wish I um, had more answers. Um, when you look around North America, cities like Seattle, Portland, Los Angeles, you know, they're dealing with the same challenge that cities like Vancouver and even small cities like Kamloops are dealing with. Uh, we don't have enough affordable housing mm -hmm. for those that have mental health and substance use disorders. We don't have enough supportive environments. And it really is because society as a whole hasn't been willing to invest enough to make a, a serious difference in, in those arenas. And you can say, well, that's just wrong, but we have to understand that North American societies are based on, uh, historically, uh, at least ever since Europeans have been here, have been based on this idea of um, individual abilities, of self-responsibility, and for those that don't share that same view, I understand, but they, you must understand that a lot of people, that's where, that's their beginning sort of attitude is that, you know, if I can make it, others can make it with just hard work. And of course it ignores the fact that we don't all have the same opportunities. Mm -hmm. We don't all come from the same backgrounds. We don't all have the same challenges. Mm -hmm. And you compare that to sort of Northern European uh, societies, Scandinavian societies in particular, where there's a, a general agreement among society that we're going to ensure that enough money is collected from individuals, from corporations, so that you can have a solid safety net, whether that's childcare, whether that's housing, whether that's mental health supports. Uh, we just, we're just not there yet as a society. And without being there, I don't see 
again, a silver bullet in terms of housing. I don't see a silver bullet in terms of mental health supports because we as a society have not been willing to uh, tax ourselves enough to allow governments to really make a difference in those realms. You, you speak about mental health as well as part of this conversation, and it's a key pillar of what we're talking about. And with some of my healthcare colleagues, sometimes we talk about, well, we see patients every day where they could get a bit more support from the mental health side of things, psychiatry services or access to psychologists. It's definitely become a, a front burner issue with COVID and social isolation that we're seeing. Is that something that you looked into, addressed, or was an issue when you were minister at that time? How do we address that? Is it hiring more psychiatrists? Is it a change in what's eligible to be covered for certain individuals? How would you approach that? And how did you approach that when you were running the health portfolio? Well, you know, we think back to the deinstitutionalization of people in the 80s and 90s, the closing of places like Riverview. Um, so we had a lot of people that uh, now needed housing, needed supports where they were. We were meeting people where they were, not putting them in places they didn't want to be. And there's no going back to that type of institutionalization. But we did try to create some specialized services. In fact, on Riverview, we rebuilt some new facilities there to house young people with refractory mental health issues, as well as adults. Probably not nearly enough, but the idea that you can force people into treatment I think is long gone. And so you have to be able to meet people where they are. So we had things like the ACT teams, which were mm -hmm. teams of psychiatrists and uh, mental health workers that would follow a cohort of people around, essentially interact with them on a regular basis. And I did some calls with the psychiatrist uh, visiting his ACT team members. And those were expanded all across the province. I really felt those were going to make a big difference. But I'm not sure they have, although I haven't seen an analysis of uh, the effectiveness of those ACT teams. Okay. Um, so, yes, we need more resources, but, you know, we have to get to the root cause. And the root cause, in many cases, is adverse childhood events. So many Indigenous uh, people have, have gone through those types of events. It's led to, you know, a, a very, very traumatic childhood and led to mental health and, and substance use disorders. But, you know, although Indigenous people are overrepresented in that population, it, it affects many, many people. And until we as a society figure out a way to support struggling families so that, you know, there is daycare available, for instance, that mm -hmm. people that aren't eating well get, get fed properly in schools. Um, you know, we have to be able to make children resilient and uh, we haven't done nearly enough. The one program I was really proud of, and this was Premier Christy Clark's, I think one of her biggest achievements was the single parent working uh, initiative, a training initiative. So people that were on social assistance, single parents, 95% of whom were women, could go back to school, have all their schooling paid for, they'd have their childcare paid for, they've had their transportation paid for, they would stay on social assistance up to six months, I think, after they graduated from their program. And we saw great success with single parents uh, finding good jobs um, and getting their kids into daycare and in many ways breaking that cycle of poverty and misery that leads to mental health and substance use disorders. 
until we do that on a broader scale across society, I don't think we're really going to um, crack the homelessness, mental health, substance use issue. And again, we have to invest. We don't invest enough in seniors care. We've seen that through COVID, but we don't invest enough in, in making sure families can be resilient, making sure that children are not vulnerable. Although I will say, you know, in the last five years, the child benefit has lifted so many young families out of poverty. And I think, so we've made a, we've made some gains there and, but it's going to take a long time. And, and so you mentioned that public policies that really address the social determinants of health are something that we should look to. I do agree that, I mean, I've worked quite a bit in the downtown east side and almost every patient that comes through who is coming for opiate uh, agonist therapy has a story to share. And these stories are often of uh, a rough childhood, as you mentioned, and supports that address that. This comes to a little bit around our healthcare system. And you can agree or disagree with me, but I think that since the beginning of time, our healthcare system is very still focused on a reactive way of doing things. What does it take or what will it take to move and shift that dial from being more reactive to really preventative and proactive? It's a lovely you know, buzzword we've used for a long time, but I mean, I don't see it. My colleagues don't see it in the sense that how do we get people healthy and informed and educated before they end up in the ER? And we talk about prescribing a healthy diet uh, as part of the the conversation or prescribing exercise. But what, what are your thoughts about that? And what challenges did you have when you were minister in terms of making those proportionate investments? I'll give you an example here. There's sometimes criticism that we're investing a lot in, in new hospitals and, and so forth that are more reactive than proactive. What would you have to say to that? Well, I totally agree. When I first became minister, I said to Stephen Brown, my deputy, um, Stephen, we've got a $17 billion budget at that time. I said, if we took $3 billion of that and put it into social services, would we get better outcomes? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like the old British sitcom. He said, yes, minister. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, we all know that. But here's the problem, Aaron. People complain about surgical wait times. They complain about not having a physician. They complain that their hospital isn't as new as the hospital down the road. Um, they don't have a cancer center, you know, in their own community. And so we were always, always, always responding to the perceived needs of the loudest people, which tend to be the people with the most privilege and the most, um, you know, the most wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we're noisiest and knew how to lobby. We're politicians. You know, if our constituents said, hey, Terry, our hospital in Kamloops is, a, is, is you know, we should be ashamed of it. Mm-hmm. Why is Penticton getting a, a big brand new extension? So you have to respond. Um, it's just the way it is. If, if I would have stood up in Kamloops and said, you know what, I understand that our hospital needs expansion, but I could take that $500 million and spend it somewhere else and have better outcomes, they wouldn't have said, well, we don't care. We want our hospital. And, you know, so everyone's self-interest is there. We're human beings. That's the way we act. But as policymakers, we have to find a way to get above that. Mm-hmm. We have to find a way to say, yes, I understand your desire for this. But can we not agree that resources are better spent over in this area? But that's really hard to do. It is really hard to do. And, you know, I'm a baby boomer. 
we've got this great bulge of baby boomers coming through the system. Right. They're all going to be demanding healthcare services. And baby boomers, you know, probably vote in greater numbers than any other demographic. Sure. So it's going to be hard to um, to say we should spend on other areas rather than the surgical centers, the cancer centers, the you know making sure you have enough physicians and nurse practitioners. Um, there are people who argue that we're spending way too much on older people and not enough on young people. So that balance is hard to find. I think we need to get to a point in society where we agree that we need to invest more in prevention and that prevention may seem that it's not directly connected to health. It may be right. daycare. It may be housing. It may be proper training. If you don't want to go to university, then how else can we train you to get a good income? One of the great, greatest determinants of health, of course, is income. So until we can you know, narrow that, that income disparity and make sure our lowest uh, quintile is higher than before, uh, we're not going to get to the point where we create healthier populations. I like what you mentioned about the things that are not directly at first glance, healthcare, the extensions of them. I can see that if you're in government, let's say for four years, announcing a project or like you say, infrastructure is obviously important to relook all the time with a, a changing population and, and changing needs from a health perspective. But it's something tangible that can be announced and an investment can be made. But I think the challenge, and you can agree or not with me, is that measuring the impact of a funding to prevention related initiative, it's tough to measure the impact directly to health to some extent. You're not able to measure it in four years, for example. No, it takes uh, sometimes decades to see the change. Um, we're seeing in the United States a huge injection of financial assistance to lower income people, uh, greater uh, healthcare opportunities. It'll be interesting to follow what happens from that to folks in the United States where the income gap is much higher than it is here in Canada. But we should not be smug uh, because there are many people that are doing well in cities uh, all over this country. And, uh, and we need to continue to find ways of, of putting in those hard to measure measures that we know will make a difference. Mm -hmm. But boy, oh boy, it is hard to convince people when you don't see the result in the election cycle. Thanks for being honest and candid about that. Just going back to the lens of the crisis in, in Canada, I find that the media uh, often focuses their attention on the downtown east side of Vancouver as the epicenter and the only place that the opiate crisis exists, that it's only a downtown east side problem. But we know that the opiate crisis occurs outside of the city of Vancouver in communities right across the province and across the country. How do we address the various, maybe you can call them segments or users that are impacted or the communities that are impacted? Uh, should we have different approaches and messaging, especially for those communities, those families that are impacted by the opiate crisis and, and are in complete shock that their son or daughter, uh, brother or sister was not a typical quote unquote drug user? Yeah, it's, um, I lost a close friend. Um, who was, you know, very high functioning, professional, a pillar of the community. And uh, I, I did not realize that, that he was using uh, substances. I don't think, well, he certainly wasn't, you know, a typical person you would suspect uh, with a substance use disorder at a very high paying job, mm -hmm. responsible mm -hmm. 
Um, and uh, he, he passed away after overdosing in a hotel room. Um, and so it seems to me, I mean, we tried to tell everyone the drug supply is poison. And if you don't, if you're using drugs recreationally, there's no, I shouldn't say there's no excuse, but there, it doesn't seem to be a reason why you would use them right now because we just don't know what's in them. But even high functioning people uh, that use drugs are using them and uh, problematically, yet they still seem to be able to function. And we know that it's true of alcohol, it's true of many things. You can be, have a problematic substance use, so you, you just absolutely need to continue doing those drugs and still be high functioning. And so that's why we need to provide safe spaces. But of course, if you're that friend of mine who obviously would not feel comfortable going to an overdose prevention site to use substances because his whole reputation would be ruined, mm -hmm. then you're going to use alone. And unfortunately, this, this is just where we see terrible tragedies occur. And then, of course, we've got very wealthy families that have young uh, members of the family that have problematic substance use, they go into rehab once, twice, three times. Mm -hmm. And often when they go into rehabilitation, which costs a lot of money, um, they're not allowed to use drugs of any kind, whether it's opioid agonists. And then when they come out, of course, their systems are not, they've downregulated, they're unable to metabolize Mm -hmm. uh, drugs and the first time they reuse, they're going to be in serious trouble. So it's a different scenarios whereby um, people pass away from this toxic drug supply in ways that would surprise you and certainly not fit the mold of what people think of as the downtown east side. To that point, you talk about the marginalized communities that are sometimes disproportionately affected by the opiate crisis. We're seeing the Indigenous community as well as other diverse communities, including the South Asian community to some extent, uh, where they, there's a new a clinic developed in Fraser Health called the Roshni Clinic that focuses on, on cultural barriers and to, to accessing help or treatment. And I can share with you, Terry, like even just at the pharmacy level, we are going by the mantra that anyone who gets an opiate medication should receive naloxone of some kind, whether it be injectable or inhaled. We're trying to get in that sort of mindset, but it can be very challenging when you have a patient who is elderly and looks at you and says, oh, do you think I'm a drug user? I don't need this naloxone. I'm not, uh, I'm not gonna need it for myself. And, and I think the education that it's not for yourself, it could be for a friend or a family member, that you're not gonna be able to administer naloxone on yourself when you're going through an overdose uh, in any way. So I find that there's a bit of stigma and challenge around engaging. Patients who think that it's not my problem and it's a downtown Eastside problem, any suggestions around how we can, as practitioners, play a stronger role in advocating for measures like naloxone in the hands of everyone who's using an opiate, for example? Yeah, you know, I'm certainly not an expert in this area at all, but, you know, I think the whole issue of overprescription leading to addiction and then, of course, with the clampdown on prescribing, then people going to the street. I'm not sure how much of a factor that I think I do think it's exaggerated to some degree. We hear about pill mills in the United States, you know, in Florida and places like that, and the Appalachians. Uh, we've all heard those stories, seen those documentaries. Mm -hmm. uh, the kids 
uh, getting into their parents' opioid prescriptions and selling them, uh, using them. Uh, so I, I think there's, there's certainly that is a factor. But I think the vast majority of people that are on opioids for chronic pain, for instance, are not likely uh, to be at risk if they're using them appropriately. So uh, you would know better than I, Aaron, if how many of those patients would really need to know about uh, naloxone because used properly under the direction of professional um, care providers that they really shouldn't have a need for naloxone. If they're going out onto the street because they can't get a hold of an appropriate supply of, of an opioid that they require, then of course that's different because with the contamination with fentanyl and carfentanil and now all kinds of uh, benzodiazepines, then they're in real danger. So I, I think it's a worthwhile conversation to have with every patient just to raise the awareness as much as possible because they're talking to other people. And so, you know, they can be an advocate for taking every precaution and, and talking about it with each other so that there isn't that stigma associated with having naloxone in the house, for instance. That stigma, I like what you say about raising the general awareness. If you had naloxone, it's not uh, something to be shy about or to be embarrassed about. It's uh, kind of the world uh, that we're living in. Before we wrap up here, talking about the world we're living in, COVID-19 and the opiate crisis, some people are calling it the dual pandemic. It's very obviously difficult when you have two public health emergencies going on at the same time. One can only imagine as the pandemic rages, the opiate crisis worsens, and we're seeing this month over month uh, increase in the number of deaths. How do you think we're doing now as a city, as a province? What more do you think we could be doing, or are we doing enough? Well, there's no question that it, it has worsened with the COVID-19 pandemic. We've seen the numbers go up. It has not occupied uh, the attention of policymakers or the public uh, because everyone's focused on COVID-19. But when you look at the number of people that have passed away from COVID-19 in British Columbia in 12 months um, versus uh, those who have died from overdoses, the figures aren't that different, actually. When you look at the resources that have been put into COVID-19 versus the ov overdose crisis, there's no comparison. If we really wanted to make a difference, we would invest hundreds of millions of dollars more into the root causes and the harm reduction that's necessary to make a real difference in the overdose crisis. But it's not popular because people think, well, that's people using drugs and it's, I'm not going to catch that because I don't do drugs. So I'm not at risk, but if we actually really wanted to keep people alive and turn it around and address some of the root causes, we'd be spending many, many millions more. We've got a, a ministry of mental health and, and, mm -hmm. and addiction that has a budget less than the premier's office. Um, that's not going to work. If we truly want to make a commitment, then let's back it up with some real investment. But I can tell you, it is not politically popular, which is extremely unfortunate. So it, there has to be a societal desire to do something, to have the political will. You need support from the people who elect you. Right. And um, maybe we'll get there. I'm hoping we will. 
But I think right now there's this tension going on when you've got homeless uh, camps that are making people feel unsafe, that are negatively impacting their neighborhood and their business uh, areas. It's hard to get people outside when that happens. So I think we're making it actually harder to bring the public on side with this issue because there's so much tension in society today around those issues. Do you think maybe along those lines, like you say, the public's perception of this crisis, the public's maybe shift towards not having major investments made in, in mitigating the crisis, do you think part of that is reframing it as more than just a downtown Eastside conversation, that it's happening to people who are working professionals, people who have a multitude of backgrounds? Well, I think we've tried, you know, everyone has tried to create that awareness. Mom, stop the harm. You know, that's, yes. they're, they're a great organization to increase that awareness. But it still doesn't move the needle because people will always say, well, I don't use drugs. No one in my family is using drugs. So, you know, that's, it's not my issue. Whereas I'm afraid of catching COVID. So it is my issue. You know, like it, it's, it's just, we don't see it in our own self-interest. We have in Kamloops, we had more overdose deaths last year than ever before. Mm -hmm. So we know that it's more than just the downtown east side issue, but it is not exclusively an issue tied to mental health, homelessness, those social issues. But I would say a very large part of it is. And until we actually try to address those issues, we will make a significant difference. Okay. As we move towards the, the end here, I think we can talk for a few hours. I know we're not going to talk today about medical cannabis and its potential role in combating the need for opiate uh, use and pain control. We can't predict the future, but if you, Terry Lake, had a crystal ball uh, 10 years from now, where do you see the opiate crisis at that time? Both from a perspective of municipalities, from the province of BC perspective, as well as from a federal Canadian perspective. Well, it's a tough one. You know, there, there are things we can do. And I think the legalization of cannabis is a very progressive public policy. We do know from research being done, some of which by a certain Dr. Stephanie Lake that uh, shows <laughs> no that bias there, you, know, right? you can have <laughs> a bit of a plug there. You can perhaps reduce the amount of opiates and other drugs that um, people use by using cannabis. So it's a harm reduction strategy. But again, until we address those root causes of substance use, mental health disorders, because, you know, many substance use disorders are really self-medication for mental health issues. Um, until we really address those, I, I don't know uh, if we'll get there. I'm hopeful that, you know, Canada in ten, 10 years from now, we will be a more egalitarian society. I think we are more progressive as a society. When I see young people, my kids, for instance, they have a different attitude than we did and certainly mm -hmm. than my parents did. So I think there is a more progressive approach that will embrace um, more ideas and also be more willing to share um, their wealth across mm -hmm. society to help those who really need it. It's tough. You know, if I was a young person today, mm -hmm. I'd be concerned about the cost of housing and, and right. being able to get a good job and, and live where that job is. And so am I going to want to donate more of my earnings to solving some of these social issues? I, I don't know, but I think young people today are do think more that way than my generation does. And certainly my parents' generation did. 
we're always kind of looking at uh, always ever accumulating more, getting further at end. And sometimes that comes at a cost uh, to other people. Towards that, I, I certainly share a line with, I've been recently involved in the publication of how to come up with a bit of a playbook for frontline practitioners around deprescribing opiates and titrating cannabinoids in the presence of opiates for pain control. And I think there's some exciting research across the globe that's going on in this area. And I think we just need more trials to validate uh, its role. So I think in the next few years, we'll see a lot of evolution around that side of things. I think healthcare practitioners are very excited and interested in playing a role. My last question is for young healthcare practitioners and providers today who are serving on the front lines, who really know the stories of our patients, who really know the impact of the opiate crisis on an individual patient level, what role could they play now and post-COVID from a community perspective in terms of advocacy, in terms of helping to move the dial on innovative public policy, uh, social determinants of health when it relates to the opiate crisis and mitigating it? Sometimes I find healthcare providers are not kept at the fringes, but they have a vast array of knowledge and are trying to find an outlet to share some of that and the experiences of the policy that they're implementing at the ground level. Well, I think, you know, you're a great example, Aaron, of someone that brings people together to talk about progressive ideas that will help uh, frontline healthcare providers approach things differently. So, you know, the young leadership coming up, as exemplified by people like you, I think is is very, very promising. Um, you know, as I said, in the past, we just kind of got our heads down and we all worked to build our business or our practice and just did whatever we needed to do. And so I think there's a different attitude today, listening to patients, understanding where they've been, how their circumstances arrived and spending more time. But I think we do need an array of different practitioners. Not everyone needs a physician for a particular problem. Uh, they may need a social worker or a counselor, a psychologist, a pharmacist obviously can know so much about the patients who uh, they work with to know how to help them, whether it's deprescribing something, that going down the ladder of harms to achieve the same result. I think those sorts of things young people are going to be much better at than my generation. And I didn't pay you to say that. So that's, uh, that's, that's great to hear. Well, certainly appreciate your time. I know you're busy these days, but thanks for sharing your, your candid thoughts around this really important conversation. Dr. Kerry Lake, appreciate the time. Good to see you again. Thanks, Aaron. It's a lot of fun. Thanks for being a part of this conversation with Terry. So what did you think? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at info at redzonepodcast.ca. Stay connected with us by following the Red Zone podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. See you next time.